following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So we had a kind of a momentous occasion in our household this, this past week. Uh, I went to uh, the DMV on Friday, and my oldest son, Caleb, he got his driver's license. So I know, I was a little nervous. He drove to church this morning. He just got here 30 minutes ago. And um, I mean, it's, it's kind of bittersweet. I feel like I'm free because I don't have to drive my kids now to every, everywhere. But, um, but at the same time, it's a little nerve-wracking because um, it's a big deal, you know. And, uh, you know, when we were at the DMV, I was, I was looking at uh, my own license, and, uh, you know, Caleb was giving his weight and his height, and I was looking at the license in my own wallet, and this is a, a very unflattering picture of me, I know. Um, I didn't black out the weight, because uh, I wanted to confess to you, I don't weigh 195 anymore, I know it's hard to believe. Uh, there should be a two in front of that one instead of the one. And I'm doing this to confess to you that um, I've, had, I've had plenty of opportunities to update the weight, and I just have, I can't get myself to do it. I think part of it is I just want to convince myself I can get back down to the ones. And um, when I look at this picture, I just, I'm like in denial that I actually look like this. I feel like it's a digital picture, and so it just kind of flattens your face, but... But I know this is really me, right? <laughs> and you know, I, my license also says that I'm five foot nine. And truth be told, I'm not five foot nine. I'm five foot eight and a half. And I heard, you know, growing up, that the average adult male height was five foot nine inches, and I could not accept being below average. So I always just tell people I'm five foot nine. I just, I round up. And I realized that almost none of the information on, on my license is actually correct here. <laughs> it's not really truthful, largely because I don't want to admit the truth. And the truth is I'm below average in height by half an inch. I'm above average in weight. And ironically, this card is supposed to be my primary means of personal identification, and yet it lies about a lot of things, right? And I'm a liar. Uh, I'm an organ donor, though, so at least I'm a generous, giving liar. <laughs> but um, we could please move on to the next slide. I'll get to that quote in a minute. I just can't look at myself anymore. Um, I think we're all guilty of this on some level, right? We kind of are in denial about who we are, what we really look like, and... Um, the truth is no one in the world lies to ourselves more than we do. And I don't think it's even close. We lie to ourselves every single day. And if anyone lied to us as frequently as we lied to ourselves, we would have cut that relationship off a long time ago, right? But here's the thing. We never get offended, offended by the fact that we lie to ourselves so much because I think we're so good at it that we don't even realize that we're, that we're doing it to ourselves. And we, we lie about the way we look um, until we see a picture of ourselves and we're kind of confronted with the fact. We lie about the way that we smell, right? I mean, how many times has someone like your wife or your spouse said, hey, 
you need to pop a breath mint, and you're like, and you're like, I don't smell anything. <laughs> or you're doing, and you don't, you know, honestly, you can't smell anything. We just, we just don't know. We just don't see it. We lie to ourselves about the way we sound. You know, do you guys ever listen to a voicemail of yourself, and you're like, I, I don't sound like that. You know, I know on worship teams, sometimes we'll listen to the sermon, and there'll be a recording of the worship, and I, I hate listening to myself sing. It's, it's just like the worst thing. And, and you know, it's, we, all, we lie about all these things. Even when it comes to our five senses in, in the physical realm, when there's like irrefutable, empirical evidence that this is true, this is what it is. And, and, you know, if this is true in this realm where you can't deny it, how much more do we lie to ourselves in an emotional and in a spiritual sense where things are far less obvious? far more difficult to test and observe and measure. You know, Rob Reiner, in his book, um, Soul Care, Seven Transformational Principles for a Healthy Soul, he says this, as always, the process of building a healthy foundation of identity begins with self-awareness. That's why the first step needs to be identifying the lies that shape you. To identify these lies, you have to pay attention to the symptoms in order to diagnose the disease. David Benner, in his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, describes a self that is constructed on a foundation of lies as the false self. It is a common term used by other authors as well. Benner says that our false self always tries to cover up our vulnerability, shame, and inadequacy by reaching for some attachment. It is like Adam and Eve reaching for fig leaves to cover the shame they felt in the garden. We have our own modern-day fig leaves that we grab for, and underneath these outward attachments lies our inward lies that we believe. The problem is that we are often not aware that we are even grabbing for these things as a means of covering up the lies we believe. Benner writes, While other people's excessive attachments and personal falsity often seems glaringly apparent, it is never easy to know the lies of our own life. It's never easy to know the lies of our own life. You know, we're in the midst of this uh, series on the life of David entitled After God's Heart. And, um, you know, I've been struck by, by this. Like, of all the people that God could have identified as the man after my own heart, he chose David. Right? I mean, we just came off the last couple of sermons from Pastor Steve about, uh, you know, his great sin with Bathsheba. David, the man after God's own heart, the one who committed adultery and murder. The guy who collected wives and concubines like Pokemon cards. And I know there are far more morally upright candidates for this title than David. But I believe God calls David a man after my own heart for a reason. And clearly it wasn't because he was righteous or holy. I think if there's one word that, could, that would characterize David in my mind, it would be that he was honest. Almost uncomfortably so. David was honest with himself. David was honest with God. David had the guts to go deep into his own heart through all all the ups and downs of his life. And David experienced it all. He knew the loneliness of tending sheep and the exhilaration of defeating a giant. 
He knew the deep sorrow of losing a best friend and the heartbreak of burying his own children. He knew the shame of sinning spectacularly and the joy that's found in forgiveness. David knew the triumph of reigning as a beloved king, and he knew the terror of being hunted like a dog. All throughout his life, David felt every human emotion possible under the sun. And he does us an incredible service in that he wrote about it and he sang about it. You know, the Bible tells about David's life as a story in narrative form, through, you know, First and Second Kings as we're going through First Chronicles. But David is one of the few characters in which the Bible goes much further than that. Right? We're given a window into his heart and his soul. We're given the Psalms, much of which he wrote. And so we not only get to see how this man lived his life, we get to see how he processed every season and circumstance that life can throw at you. And this is why I believe God tells us that this, this man, he's the one after my own heart. It's as if God is saying, I want you to notice he's not perfect. He's not even close. But he's honest. He's honest with himself. And he's honest with me. And I don't think God does this gives him this title because he's putting him on a pedestal. I believe he tells us this so that we might know that this is the heart I want you to have. This is the guy who found my heart. It's as if God is giving all of us a blueprint, a model for how he wants us to relate to him. He's saying, look at this guy. Look at how brutally honest he is with me. Look at how he brings all of it before me, his anger, his grief, his fears, his joys. And this is what I want from you too. You can have my heart just like David did. And it doesn't require you to be perfect. It requires you to be honest. Honest about everything you're feeling. Honest about who you are on the inside. Even the things that you don't see. You know, David wrote um, in Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who can be in your presence, Lord, is what he's saying. And he says this, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who speaks truth in his heart. You know, I believe David's not just talking about speaking a truth outwardly but an inward truth into our own hearts. And he's being honest about what we were really feeling and who we really are. And that could be scary because most of us don't want to admit how broken we really are. We don't want to speak that truth into our heart. We don't want God to uncover that truth. But sometimes I feel like so much of life is designed by God to reveal the true me to myself. And oftentimes it takes years. It takes a process. And it's almost like, you know, God stages it for us. You know, when when we're children, we grow up, you know, Lord willing, most of us in a a loving home where parents love us and care for us. And so, you know, relatively speaking, there's not a lot of relational conflict in our lives. Uh, And I remember even as a child myself, like I rarely experienced like very intense moments of anger, I rarely cried as a kid. 
Uh, but then, you know, we go into high school and then to college, and I don't know if any of you had a potluck roommate before, but you go, and now, uh, for many of us, I'm guessing, you know, you're sharing a room with someone for the first time in like an eight-by-eight-foot square, spa- square foot space, and you begin to realize things about yourself, right, in that, in that little environment. And, you know, some of these other emotions begin to come out that maybe, you know, you never really experienced before. And then you go and you graduate from college and you go to the workplace and, you know, you've got to work with people who are very different from you. Some who may have a different uh, work ethic than you. And that can be frustrating as well, right? And it can bring out all these different emotions in yourself. And then, you know, uh, most of us end up getting married too. And, man, you can't hide anything from someone that lives with you, right? 24-7 and... And then parenthood, right? I mean, just throw in marriage and then lack of sleep (laughs) and trying to raise children. And it all just kind of comes out, doesn't it? What's on the inside? But I think that is half the gospel, is to understand just how sinful and broken and needy I am, desperately need to be made whole. And nothing exposes that fact like our emotions do. You know, Dan Allender, in his book, The Cry of the Soul, he puts it this way, emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. To understand our deepest passions and convictions, we must learn to listen to the cry of our soul. You know, Pastor Steve mentioned in an earlier sermon in this series that our emotions are actually the most honest window into our hearts. We've been talking a lot about this, you know, uh, in our parenting series, or the parenting seminars, and, you know, in our, in our leadership meetings, that emotions are the most honest windows into our hearts. And I think this is why so many of us are emotionally stunted in a way. It's not just a cultural thing, as much as it is a sinful self-preservation thing. And as we've been going through this series, you know, I've, I've been trying to figure out for myself, like, what, why am I like this? Why am I so emotionally stunted? What's going on on a deeper level that makes me avoid getting in touch with what I am actually feeling emotionally? Why am I so quick to push away negative emotions and invalidate, invalidate those feelings in my spouse? Why do I make it unsafe for my children to express their negative emotions in our, in our home, like sadness and fear and anger around me? Why am I uncomfortable helping them process it? Why am I unable to be emotionally honest with God as David was? And these are hard questions. And yet these are the kind of questions that God's been moving in my own heart as you know, Pastor Steve has been preaching through these, this series and... Um, Dan Allender goes on to say this, part of understanding difficult emotions is comprehending why we avoid them. The reason we don't want to feel is that feeling exposes the tragedy of our world and the darkness of our hearts. Feeling exposes the tragedy of our world and the darkness of our hearts. No wonder we don't want to feel. Feelings Expose the illusion that life is safe, good, and predictable. 
and this was really eye-opening for me, because what he's saying here is, in other words, we avoid dealing with our emotions because if we do, we can no longer ignore the reality of our own brokenness and the brokenness of this world. And many of us would just rather live in ignorant bliss of that, right? But I think Psalm 139, which we're going to get into in a moment, is one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture because it invites us to be honest with our emotions before God and find healing and wholeness in that honesty. And I think some of us really struggle with that because we've opened ourselves up to someone before and we've come away wounded. And we vowed maybe to ourselves, we're never going to do that again. I'm never going to be emotionally vulnerable like that again. Or we've been emotionally honest with someone we've trusted and we've come away feeling ignored, invalidated, even abandoned. But know that God is worthy of our trust. God knows that we will not open up our hearts and be honest with him and honest with what is inside our emotions until we can first trust him with it. And so in Psalm 139, this is arguably one of the most beautiful chapters about the transcendent nature of God in the Bible. In this chapter, we see David wrestling with allowing God into the deepest recesses of his heart. And we see God opening up David's heart by revealing himself to him. And here we see why God can be trusted with our hearts. Let's read it together. It says this, Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. 
When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. You know, David opens this psalm with with these powerful words. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. And, you know, this simple statement sets the tone for this entire passage. David recognizes that God is the only one that could ultimately reveal what is going on deep inside of him. And this chapter actually begins and it ends with this statement because David knows self-revelation begins and ends with God. We are all blind, ultimately, to ourselves. We need God to open our eyes, just as he did for so many, literally in the Gospels. And so although this is an incredible passage about the nature of God, the purpose of this Psalms is not just to reveal God's true nature, but to reveal my true nature to myself. Warren Worsby says this, the verb search here, and you've searched me, O Lord, means to examine with pain, to examine with care. And the Jewish people use this word to describe digging deep into a mine, exploring a land or investigating a legal case. Our friends see the outside, but God sees the heart, and we cannot deceive him. Adam and Eve tried it. Cain tried it. And even David tried it. And all of them discovered that God knew all about them. To search means to dig deep into a mind, to unpack something that is hidden, unknown and unseen. And David says this, You've searched me, Lord. You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before the word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You know, David opens with this acknowledgement that God has searched his soul and he, God knows him intimately, even better than David knows himself, right? He knows everything about me. He knows where I'm going, where I am. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Um, you know, uh, there's this app. I don't know if you guys have an iPhone, but uh, if, you, if you do, you've got to get this app. It's Life360. I think it comes with the phone. I use it all the time. It allows me to track where everyone in my family is at all times. And um, it's coming really handy now that my son is driving. I checked how fast he was driving yesterday by himself. Go to the next slide. He went to Jewel. Next slide. Two-mile drive, 36 mile per hour top speed. So that's good. That's okay. But, you know, you feel a sense of power. The technology is like so much information. I, I know where my family, well, assuming they have their phone, right? I know where they are at all times. And we have this camera at home, too. Uh, 
if you can go to the next slide, um, sits in our living room. And, you know, most my kids often just forget that it's there. But once in a while, uh, I'll check it on my phone just to see what they're doing if I'm at work or something. And um, I can see it all. <laughs> and it's got a little speaker in it, too. So if I want to, I can, like, say something through the camera. And one time I was like, hey, guys, what are you doing? They're like, oh, what was, what was that? <laughs> it's a, I feel the power. I feel God-like, you know. Um, but even technology has its limitations. I can know where my kids are, where my family is at any point in time. But God's knowledge is not limited in just a physical sense, right? He knows where we are, just as the psalm tells us, but he knows where we are even mentally and emotionally. Understanding what I'm thinking before I could even express it to him, before I could even form the words, says, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. And that's really remarkable. And as we go deeper into this psalm, it becomes quickly apparent that God already knows everything about us. Our whereabouts and our thoughts, our will and our desires. You are familiar with all my ways. And if this is true, then me being honest with God is not so that he can gain some new information about me from me, right? He already knows. What's the point, ultimately, of me being honest with God if he already knows? Being honest with God is about us being honest with ourselves before God. It's for our benefit, not his. And there's so much that we are blind to about ourselves, and we need God's help to see what it is within us that we are unable to see. Right? And that is what David acknowledges you know, verse 5 says this, You hem me in behind and before, and you, you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty to attain. You know, I love this verse because God knows where we are, wherever we may choose to go, but there will be seasons in your life in which God will not allow you to go anywhere. And he will hem us in behind and before. And this is a picture of a gentle, loving shepherd corralling sheep who have gone astray. It's a picture of forced stillness. A place where there's no way forward, where there's no way out. And to many of us, this will feel very uncomfortable. It will feel very limiting. It will feel like you're stuck in life. And your inclination will be to despair. But there's a big difference between feeling stuck and, there's a, and being still. And it all comes down to our perspective and our faith. You know, we often complain when God brings us to a place in life where we feel utterly stuck. You know, we can be stuck in an unwanted job, in an unwanted relationship, in a broken marriage. We can be stuck in a financial mess or an emotional rut. But maybe this is actually the loving hand of God. And this is a place where God just wants you to be still. You know, why does God often command his children to be still? This is a very common 
mandate in scripture, be still, right? And what follows? It says, be still and know that I am God. God will often bring us to stillness so that we might know him and know that he is God. He's sovereign. He's sovereign over and above it all. He's in control, not us. And sometimes we have to be still to realize that. We have to come to a grinding halt in our own lives. And sometimes the only way we realize that is if we're unable to move forward with our plans, our agenda, our goals in life. And in that frustration, God will reveal things inside of us that we didn't even know was there. And in that stillness, God will reveal himself in ways we have never seen. God will lay his hand upon us and touch us with his love and his power in ways we've never felt. And I believe this is why David follows with this thought. (coughs) Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. David's not thinking about how wonderful he is. (coughs) He's a pretty wonderful guy. But that's not what he's saying here. He's realizing how wise and wonderful God is in this place of stillness that God has brought him to. And God knows us. God knows what we need. God knows that we need to know him and to know ourselves. God wants us to know that we can trust him because he is all-knowing. He's omniscient. David realizes this and he expresses this in this psalm. Uh, knowing that God has perfect knowledge of our innermost thoughts and motives. Um, I don't know, for me, that's kind of a scary thought, right? That anyone could have that kind of perfect knowledge. And, you know, our first instinct is probably just to run and hide. And that's what David expresses here, right? Who wouldn't be afraid if someone has perfect knowledge of us? But David recognizes the futility of this. He recognizes that God is not only omniscient, that he's all-knowing, but he's also omnipresent. He is everywhere. And so he says this, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is his light to you. You know, David's first inclination when he realizes that God knows it all, that God knows even the things that he cannot see deep within his own heart, his first inclination is to run in light of that all-knowing power. But then David begins to see, even in these few verses here, that the omnipresence of God is not a curse, it's a comfort. It's not something to fear. It's something to cherish. There is no corner in this world that God will not pursue his wayward child. There is no dark place that I can go and venture that God himself will not intrude and overpower with his light. He knows where my heart can go and he will go there with me. That is his promise. And this is, I think, the journey of our emotions. There are times we want him near when we're feeling good. There are times when we want him far. But God's promise is this, that he is ever present. He is always beside me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. Even when I run from him, I will never outrun God, no matter how hard I try. 
And so the omnipresence of God should not invoke fear in us, it should inspire comfort. And why does he pursue us to the ends of the earth? David tells us in these next few verses, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb, and I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows us intimately because he made us intricately. And David launches into worship here when he realizes God's awesome creative power. David understands that while he is broken and he is marred by sin, still he is created by God in the image of God, as we all are, crafted carefully by our Creator, fearfully and wonderfully made in his likeness, conceived by God before time began. And this is why we experience emotions such as love and anger and sorrow unlike any other creature on earth. Because being made in God's image, we all have intrinsic worth and we all have a longing for God and an innate desire for justice and a sense of loss. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. So while we are to grieve over our brokenness due to our sin nature and, this, and the brokenness of this world, we're also to honor God's image in ourselves and in one another. And this is why we're called to care for and love one another because of that reason, especially the least of these, especially those who are unable to care for and protect themselves. Um, you know, I don't want to use the pulpit as a political platform, but, you know, that's not my intention, but... As a pastor, I cannot preach on this text without addressing the beauty and the sanctity of each and every human life. And, you know, I'm not trying to belittle the incredibly difficult decision that many have made on abortion. I understand that this is often a decision that's made under horrible circumstances, and my heart goes out to any parent who feels like they had no other choice. And if you or someone you love has aborted a child and you're beating yourself up over it, I don't believe God wants you to carry that guilt to your grave. There is freedom and there is forgiveness for all in Christ. But I think the Bible is very clear about how God views life. And we see it right here. About how God views when life begins and how we are to respect and treasure life. And you know, I say this because last month, you know, the U.S. Senate was unable to pass a bill called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And this was um, designed to protect the life of a newborn who has survived a failed abortion. And it needed 60 votes to pass, and it didn't get 60 votes. It only got 53. And, you know, this, this really grieved me because, you know, we're not even talking about a fetus here. We're talking about a newborn child living and breathing outside the womb of its mother who can still be terminated after birth. And for years, the, the abortion debate has centered around the question of when, when does life actually begin, right, as being the dividing line of when it should be per- permissible to terminate a fetus. Does, it begin at, does life begin at conception? 
You know, does it begin in the third trimester when the child is viable? But that's not even the question anymore, is it? And I think this bill exposed that. Exposed that. You know, apparently for many, choice trumps life every time, even life outside of the womb. And that should alarm us. And I believe this grieves God and this should grieve us. And we need to pray for our nation. We need to stand for the least of these. And, you know, I'm sorry about the tangent. But as one of your pastors, I, I can't, you know, stand silent on this issue, especially as we're going through this text. You know, after God, after David realizes God's awesome creative power, David says this, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. David shows us that in the process of opening up his heart and his emotions to God, God not they are to him. How vast. As David gives his heart fully to God, he's given a greater glimpse of the heart of God, and he's overwhelmed by God's love. This epiphany is like a dream to him, and he says, when I awake, I'm still with you. But when he wakes, he realizes he wasn't dreaming. This is all real. Have you ever been there? Where you wanted something so badly in your spirit that you find yourself dreaming about it, and when you wake up, you're so disappointed. Oh, it was just a dream. David says, this is not true of God's love. No matter what you can dream up about how good it is, you will find that it is true and it is better. It's real. You cannot ever be disappointed by the love of God. And this, is a, this chapter, this is a very deeply theological text, right? It speaks to some of these greatest attributes of God as we're unpacking his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. But here's what's remarkable is when you reflect on these words, you don't feel like you're reading theology, do you? David is able to convey these profound truths about the transcendence of God and express it in a deeply intimate and personal way. And this is the, the power of honest prayer before God. I believe our honesty before God opens up a greater revelation, not only of who we are, but who he is. God in his goodness has given us a model in David of what it means to be a person after his own heart and what is promised for those who seek him in this way. An overwhelming sense of the perfect love of God. You know, when, uh, when I was first pursuing my wife, Kim, back in our college days, I was totally convinced that she was the one for me. Um, we didn't interact all that much <laughs> at that point in time when I asked her, hey, will you pray about marrying me? And she did for a few months, and then she's, she couldn't do it anymore. And um, she broke my heart. And uh, looking back now, I was like, what was I thinking? Like... <laughs> basically asking her to marry me and we were just friends and we barely you know even then we didn't really know each other all that well and you know talking to to, to Kim about it now it's she says well like you didn't even know me <laughs> you know like how could you how could you be so convinced that I was the one for you if you didn't even really know me and it's true I didn't really know her <laughs> um I loved my idea of her 
at least at that time. I love the way she made me feel. Um, but, you know, we're almost 20 years into marriage now. And, you know, that we've been married for almost, almost two decades. Um, you know, sometimes we'll ask one another, would you still marry me, knowing what you know now? And it's kind of a loaded question, right? <laughs> of course, the answer is always yes. But, you know, what you're saying is like, now that you really know me, would you still pursue me like you used to? Would you still accept me? Would you still unconditionally love me and cherish me despite all the knowledge of my faults and my failures and flaws? And that's a, that's a, that's a deep question, isn't it? This is not true of God. God does know you inside out, and yet we are told he loves you unconditionally. In fact, because he knows, we know that he knows us so well, we can rest in the promise and the security that he does truly not just know us, he loves us despite knowing us. With every other relationship, there's always this fear that this person whom I love, even our spouse, if they were to really know me, truly know me, know this dirty, dark secret about me, maybe they wouldn't really love me anymore. And I think we all live with this some kind of fear in almost every relationship on some level. And this never exists with God. He knows it all, and he loves us still. And deep down, I believe, all of us live with this constant fear of rejection. But in Psalm 139, God tells us that that is an unfounded fear. I love you perfectly, and I know you perfectly. You know, we, we quote this, I think, of, I've quoted this a bunch of times. I know Pastor Steve has too. I just love it. It's probably my favorite Tim Keller quote. And I think it summarizes this chapter so well. It says, Tim Keller says, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved, that is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is it's a lot like being loved by God. And that is the love we need more than anything. I'm going to wrap it up here as we close in this last section. And what comes next in this passage, I think, is, is really gets to the, the, what I want to talk about. And I think this is so remarkable. You know, here we are unpacking these unbelievable truths about God in a very personal and intimate way walking in this rarefied air, meditating on the transcendence of God, his intimate knowledge and his love for me. And then suddenly David says this, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. (laughs) Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. It's almost like David's like throwing a tantrum all of a sudden. like, I hate people! (laughs) And in the midst of this beautiful, poetic passage of God's intimate love and knowledge, David has this like unexpected emotional outburst of anger. And he he, he almost seems bipolar here. Can you find a more dramatic mood swing in the Bible than this? Has this ever happened to you? You go from one emotional extreme to another. 
And this happens a lot, actually, when I'm driving. <laughs> you know, I'll be listening to a worship song, I'll be in my happy place, or I'm listening to a sermon podcast in my car, and I'm feeling all worshipful and spiritual. And all it takes is one jerk to cut me off. <laughs> and I go to that angry place really quick, right? And one emotion just quickly transforms to another. But it's often our horizontal relationships, right, which provoke our strongest emotions, revealing our brokenness. And we need to take that and we need to understand what it is telling us about our relationship with God. You know, Allender writes this, we most often think of emotions in horizontal terms, how we're doing in relation to people in our lives. But in a deeper sense, emotions reveal what is happening on a vertical level. They provide a window on the question, what am I doing with God? There will be unexpected disruptions in your own life, and it will be often caused by the people around you, those in your family, those in your workplace, those maybe even in this church. And you will need to come to terms with that. And all of these powerful, even shameful emotions will begin to come out. And it will be evoked by any number of people, and you will find yourself asking yourself, like, what? If you're really honest, like, what is, what is that? What is going on inside me? Where did that come from? Why did I feel this? Or why did I respond like that? And this is when we need to come back to God. Recognizing his work in us is not done yet, is it? And this is what David does when he's blindsided by this powerful emotion of anger about his enemies. As quickly as this emotion comes out, he almost immediately takes it to God. And he says, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you're honest with your emotions and what you are feeling, it will often humble you, sometimes even discourage you, maybe even depress you. You're not nearly as good a person as you thought you were. But David models for us something powerful here. We are to take that and to be honest with it, about it with God, and we are to take these honest emotions before God and ask him to continually reveal to us what we need to see in ourselves. You know, it's interesting. This chapter opens with, you have searched me and you know me. That's a historical perfect tense. You've searched me. You know me. But after this emotional outburst, David repeats these words, but now it's, it's a different tense. It's an It's a present active tense. And he says, search me. God, know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. And this statement becomes more of a request and a confession now. His emotions have made it clear to him he still has a ways to go. God still needs to do a work in his life. And if he's being honest with God about that and inviting God to continue in that work, this is a man after God's own heart. This is the heart that God desires of us. When we submit ourselves into God's loving care and we allow him to uncover the real me to myself, he's leading me into life everlasting. He's making me more and more into the image of his son. And this is what God is inviting each of us into. It requires honesty for ourselves and before God. You know, uh, more recently, 
as I've been chewing on this, it's, this has really transformed the way I even pray now. Um, I feel like, you know what, I've I got to get way more honest in my prayers. We, we can, we, it's very easy to kind of put out these canned cliches when we pray because it just sounds right. It's presentable before a holy God. But if David models anything for us, it's recognize what's happening in your heart and the emotions you're feeling and just put it out there. You know, uh, I think a week or two ago, I just woke up in the middle of the night really anxious. Um, you know, we're, we're in the cusp of trying to make a big decision um, on our family about, you know, what's, what my wife is going to do with her job. And I just woke up anxious and I just started praying out loud. I don't know if my wife even remembers this, but I just told God, I, I feel really anxious right now, God. And I just named that emotion. And I just put it before him. Even on the way here, you know, I was, I was feeling nervous about giving this message. And I just told God, I, I'm feeling really nervous right now, Lord. And it sounds a little bit weird, but it's honest. And um, giving him my whole heart requires trusting in his heart. He knows you. He pursues you. He created you. You can trust him with the most tender and broken parts of who you are. He's the God of the broken, and he alone can make you whole. Let's pray.